listening to Footprints on Our Hearts, a podcast about baby loss, legacy, and learning to live again with me, Alison Ingleby. The baby loss community is one that no one wants to join, but together we can break the silence around baby loss and help each other navigate the rocky road that is grief, because all children leave footprints on our hearts. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to episode 12 of Footprints on Our Hearts. I hope you're all doing well, and if you're listening from the UK, that you're enjoying the sunny weather we've been having. It's been rather glorious, and I'm I'm just kind of, as the pessimist, just waiting for it to end. I mean, you can still get snow in April, right? <laughs> but I will definitely take the sun while it lasts. It's it's really nice, and is making being at home a lot, um, and being able to go out in the garden um, really good. So in today's episode, I have an interview with Hayley Bennett Stanley. Um, and I was really pleased that Hayley decided, agreed to come on the podcast to talk about her experience, because compared to a lot of the guests who I've had on the show, her loss is very recent. And she gave birth to her son, Ike, um, in August last year. So, you know, it really is still perhaps kind of that early stage of grief in a, in a way. Um, so I'm very grateful for her to come uh, for coming on the show. We talk about how she found out that I could died at 26 weeks and his birth and the time after his birth, but also what her and her husband decided to do on Ike's due date. And I think this is something for those of us whose loss is perhaps earlier in pregnancy. So it's, you, you know, you don't, get that full term loss your baby's due date is really that first big milestone you have to overcome and i know i found it quite hard in the run up to sky's due date um, and deciding what what to do around that so i'm really grateful that haley shared her experiences of that she also talks about how she feels grief prepared her for dealing with the current coronavirus pandemic and how she ran a marathon completely alone to raise money for Tommy's in Ike's memory after the event she had been planning to do, the Manchester Marathon, was postponed because of the pandemic. Um, And I've done a bit of running um, in the past, and honestly, there is a big difference between doing something like a marathon and your first marathon at a big event where you've got people cheering you on, you've got the atmosphere other runners around you and heading out as Haley did at six o'clock in the morning on a Sunday morning so she could get you know the, the empty streets before people started emerging for the day and ran that marathon with just her her headphones and uh, podcasts for company so she really is a warrior and um, I had a lot of fun talking to her and I hope you enjoy the interview Um, Thank you to everyone who messaged me about last week's um, coronavirus COVID-19 special. Um, I'm glad it was useful. Um, If you haven't listened to it, feel free to to go back. There's lots of anecdotes and tips and um, yeah, bits and pieces on how different people are coping with with the current situation. Um, I think more than anything, it's a bit of a roller coaster. I feel like for me, this week has been a bit better. I feel like maybe I'm kind of getting used to it now. (laughs) Um, And I don't mind it so much. Um, But I think there is, you know, there's a natural up and down to to all of this, as there is with everything in life. So yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying being on the upside and, and preparing myself for the next dip. Anyway, I haven't got anything else to update you on today. So we will get straight into the podcast. As always, if you enjoy the podcast or think you know anyone who you think might benefit, please do spread the word. Um, And if you've got any suggestions for future episodes or you just want to get in touch, then you can find me on Instagram at Footprints on Our Hearts um, or you can email me. My email address is alison at footprintsonourhearts.com. Enjoy the podcast episode. Today, I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast by Hayley, marathon runner and mum to Ike, who we will be talking a lot about today. Welcome to the podcast, Hayley. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Lovely to have you on the show. Could you start by telling us a bit about you and when you and your husband first started thinking about starting a family? 
Okay, so um, I live in West Yorkshire with my husband and we've been together for 13 years and married for five. Um, and I think we knew we wanted a family quite early on in the relationship, really. We both knew we wanted children. Um, one thing that kind of held us back a little bit was um so my mum has a very rare form of motor neuron disease and for probably about 12 years of having symptoms uh, doctors didn't know that that's what it was and she was referred quite early on in her symptoms to a geneticist so um her consultant was convinced basically for all this time for, for years and years that she had an unexplained neurological condition um, that could be put down to some sort of genetic or hereditary component. So she was under investigation for all this time and we waited for probably about five or six years for something called the 100,000 Genomes Project um, for the results of that to come through. They basically took her um, DNA and they mapped her entire genome to figure out what the problem was. And obviously that revealed nothing. <laughs> But and, and obviously now we know that it's motor neuron disease and it doesn't have a genetic component at all, which is good news um, because we obviously thought that if we went straight into having children that we might be able to, we might be passing some sort of disorder onto our offspring. So um, obviously it was reassuring to have those results, but we did have things on hold for quite a while. I think I was getting to the point where I was desperate to start having babies um, and we, when we couldn't, it wasn't the responsible thing to do at that at that point but yeah so the the results finally came through I think it was August 2018 and then sort of a few months of thinking and talking and sorting things out and we decided we'll go for it and we were really really lucky actually we fell pregnant really quickly um which I'm a very impatient person at the best of time so that was that was really good for me and um I was already getting to the point even just two months in of like obs obsessing over ovulation and things like that um probably a lot of your listeners will be able to appreciate that if they've been through the same um, but we were very lucky, fell pregnant and um, I sort of, because we waited so long for mum's test results, it was, um, I felt like I'd already done all of my waiting and uh, and my penance. So I thought, oh, things are going to go really well. But I am a natural worrier as well. So, and a natural pessimist. My husband's the complete opposite. He's eternally optimistic. Um, but I was very much negative from the start, really. Um, and I knew this statistic about one in four. So one in four pregnancies ends in loss. And I pretty much convinced myself with my worried brain that I would miscarry. And they always say the first 12 weeks are the most dangerous and the, where, where most of the problems occur. And so I was just such a worrier. And then it got to that first scan. And oh, no, actually, sorry, I've forgotten part of this story. About six weeks in, I had a very, very small bleed. Um, which because I'm a worry, obviously I thought the worst, I thought I was going to miscarry and I went and got that checked out and had a, a an emergency scan and it turned out to be fine. Um, it was just a small hematoma, which your body gets rid of. It's like a, I think it's like a blood clot that, um, sort of forms itself where the embryo is attached or something like that. I don't really know the science. Um, so that was all fine. And then got to the 12 week scan and I sat in the waiting room just thinking, oh, it's going to, you know, we're going to go in and then my baby's going to already be dead or whatever. I'm just, I'm so negative. And obviously it was fine. And Ike was there on the screen. Obviously we didn't know he was a boy at that point, but everything was fine and normal and healthy and textbook. And so, you know, I relaxed a little bit after that. <laughs> and then a few weeks later, we had the 20 weeks gone. And I was a little bit less worried by this point because people always talk about the safe zone and you get to 12 weeks and if everything's fine, then, you know, it's just plain sailing after that. But obviously, I knew there was the 20 weeks can coming up and then we sailed through that one as well. And that was the most fantastic experience, actually. Um, and did you did you find out that you were expecting a boy at your 20 weeks? Yes, stand? we did. Um, we talked about it because... Um, we both consider ourselves feminist and we d we're not really into, particularly me, I'm not really into sort of gender stereotyping. And um, I was from the very beginning, from when we first got the positive pregnancy test, I was like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, um, if we find out 
the gender. We're not going to have all blue for a boy and all pink for a girl. And I was very set on that. Um, but in the end, because I'm such a control freak and I just think <laughs> I, I wanted to know. I wanted to know what we were having. So we basically decided as a compromise <laughs> that we would find out if it was a boy or a girl, but then not tell anybody. So that's what we did. So we found out it was a boy. It was just one of the happiest moments of my life honestly um seeing him on the screen knowing that he was a boy I burst into tears like happy tears and it was a really nice moment and he was really wriggly and I was just amazed at how much you could see on the scan as well it was just incredible um the equipment they had at the LGI which is where we had all, all our scans and where I gave birth to him as well. Um, I don't know if this is specific to that hospital, but you could see the different chambers of the heart and they colour-coded the blood flow. So you could see the oxygenated blood and the deoxygenated blood in blue and red. Um, and it was it was just fascinating. I loved it. Um, yeah, we didn't get that. So <laughs> all right, okay. I think we had some special, yeah, special treatment there. Well, that was, that was really good. And yeah, and again, everything was normal. Um, healthy he looked great the sonographer was really smiley and um, we didn't really get a detailed report or anything but we were just told um, all of his measurements were within normal range no problems as far as they could tell you know and then I was deemed low risk and you know it was a very straightforward pregnancy really um, up until it wasn't so yeah and then so I'll go on to talk about maybe what happened later is that yeah so I guess I guess because I'm quite so I'm quite like you in that I'm the negative half of our relationship my husband's the optimist (laughs) and I I do think it's natural I don't know maybe not everyone feels like this but I definitely worried not not overly so but there was definitely that thought in my mind throughout the pregnancy about oh you know you know, I prepared myself for the fact I might have a miscarriage before 12 weeks. And then you relax a bit more. And then, you know, that 20 week scan is the one where you kind of find out if there's anything wrong, don't you? So yeah, yeah once you after that, so I guess, did you start relaxing after that 20 weeks then and, and really Absolutely. enjoying it? Yeah. I'd, I mean, that was the point at which after that 20 week scan, that was the point at which I finally let myself believe that we would be having this baby and that our son would be healthy and we would be taking him home as planned, that he would be born in November, which is when my due date was. And yeah, I mean, we had no reason to believe that he wouldn't be coming home with us as a healthy firstborn baby. So yeah, that's that's the point at which we started buying stuff, um, as you do. Um, so I bought a ton of clothes, um, which I've still got in the drawers, um, all gender neutral, even though we knew he was a boy. <laughs> I'm with you on that. Um, yeah. Um, and yeah, I just almost couldn't stop myself. So we got a cot. Um, well, we got a secondhand cot from a friend. We bought it from a friend. We got a pram. We got, you know, a car seat, all of that stuff. And yeah, I did finally decide, yeah, this is going to, this is happening for us. Um, stop worrying. Um, and because I was low risk, you know, it was it got to the point where my community mid- midwife team, particularly, they almost like weren't interested in me. You know, I'd walk in for an appointment and they'd just be like, oh, yeah, OK, this woman again. And oh, yeah, everything's fine. Like, yeah, I've got more important things to do and I go away. Like, they ne- obviously, they never said that, but um, that's kind of how I felt. It was just very much like it was exciting for me. But for them, it was just like, oh, another another textbook pregnancy. OK, yeah, everything's fine your scan looked fine and, and uh, off you go type thing. Um, so, so yeah, that was pro- probably one of the happiest periods of my life, actually, being 20 weeks pregnant, knowing I was going to have a little boy and everything was really nice and happy and relaxed. And um, yeah. So at what, point, <laughs> at what point then did, did things start to go wrong with that? Um, so I was 26 weeks pregnant and the timing was probably not great, but but good in some respects. I'll, I'll sort of explain that. Um, we were supposed to be going on holiday to Canada and it was going to be our last big blowout holiday. You know, do they call it a baby moon? Have I heard of that yeah, before? Yeah, baby moon, yeah. Your last big holiday is two of you before you. Yeah, before it. you become a parent. Yeah, so... 
we planned this this epic trip to Canada. I was going to go over and see see my friend who lives there, and we were both really excited. Um, and I was packing because it was the start of my summer holidays. I should say I'm a teacher, so I was off work, and it was a Friday. I was getting my bag packed, like doing a practice pack for Canada. We were supposed to be flying on the Monday, um, but over that weekend we were really busy as well because it was actually my dad's 60th birthday. And I'm from Sunderland, so we were planning on going up there for the weekend and celebrating my dad's birthday with him. And then, yeah, flying off to Canada on the Monday. So I was just sort of pottering about the house and um, I started feeling sort of cramps, but just mild at first. Um, And then I think I went to the loo and there was a bit of bleeding, but it was it was really, really hardly anything. Um, and I just thought, oh, you know, you've, you've had your 20 week scan and that was good. And that was only a few weeks ago. And I'm sure it's nothing, but I just sort of, as the day went on, I got more and more worried and I thought, well, it's a Friday as well. So no one's going to scan me on a weekend or do anything about me on a weekend. And especially as I was low risk. So I thought, well, I'll ring the hospital and try and make a bit of a fuss. And at first, so, so Martin was at work as well. My husband was at work. Um, and I texted him saying, look, I don't think... Um, I think I just want to get checked out. I'm sure it's fine, but I just want to get checked out because I've had a little bit of a bleed. I also realised I hadn't felt like move um, for a little while as well, but I couldn't quite put my finger on when I last felt a move and it was all just a bit, uh, but I thought I'll just go for reassurance. They fobbed me off at first, um, which is probably, it's probably in their training, right? So they said, oh, you know, it sounds like everything's fine. It's quite common to bleed. It doesn't sound like it's new blood, you know, bright red. It doesn't sound like there's a lot. Um, let us know if the cramping gets worse or if the blood bleeding gets worse or anything. So so I, I put the phone down and then a couple of hours later, I thought, no, I'm, I'm not. This isn't right. I need, to, I need to see somebody. So I rang them and I actually told a bit of a white lie and I said, yeah, there's loads more blood. Um, I really think there's something wrong. So they said, right, come down then. So I got the ta- I got a taxi down because... Um, parking at the LGI is a nightmare. <laughs> so I thought, I'll just get a taxi down. And so I texted my husband saying, look, it's fine. You don't have to come, but I'm going to the hospital just for reassurance. And they got me, I felt a bit embarrassed at first because when I went in, they wanted my pad um, to see how much I'd bled. And obviously it was obvious by that point that I was telling a bit of a fib. So, but anyway, I gave them, gave them this pad and they took a urine sample and and then they took me through to this ward and there were ladies in bays um, having various treatments or diagnostics. I don't really know. Maybe people being induced or something. I don't know. And a midwife came with the Doppler and put it on my bump and she couldn't find the heartbeat. And I was just trying to like internally just trying to calm myself down. Like, I'm sure it's fine. This happens a lot. You know, he's probably just in the wrong position. And then she got another midwife and she came and she couldn't find it either. And still by this point, I, I didn't really, I didn't really think that that's what it was. I, I thought, you know, there's always hope. You always, even though I'm a pessimist at this point, I was kind of convinced it was all happening for us. So it was, you know, I, I just thought, you know, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. And then after that second Doppler, they said, okay, we're sure it's fine, but just come into this room and we're going to get a consultant who knows more and they will come and do an ultrasound. So then this consultant came and did the ultrasound and he couldn't find his heartbeat. And I can't actually remember the words that he said. You know, sometimes you hear about lost mums talking about, you know, I'll never forget those three words or five words or whatever it was. I can't actually remember the exact wording. I just know he told me and I was just in complete shock (laughs) um and obviously didn't have my husband there for comfort as well but I have to say the staff were outstanding the most compassionate um professional people um I feel a bit emotional now just thinking about it um they were amazing and one of the midwives asked do like do you want to phone your husband or do you want me to phone him and I said I really don't think I can say that out loud it's it's I can't do it. So she rang, she offered to ring him. And I still feel really bad for that, that she had to tell him over the phone. And obviously he came down as soon as he could from work, um, but it just seemed to take forever. And and yeah, 
our life turned upside down <laughs> at that point. Yeah, as it does. I mean, I I always find it really fascinating talking to different people about their experiences, and it makes me realise how. I guess different carers across the countries or even like the individual people you speak to because so for example when you called up and said you were having these issues you know when I called up my hospital which for the context of people Hayley and I actually live quite close together so we were at different hospitals but you know they're kind of in adjacent cities so not that far away um and I was about the same gestation as well. Um, and I sort of, all I said was, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's fine, but I'm sort of feeling some reduced movement. And they were like, well, I'm sure it is fine, but come in anyway and we'll we'll check the heartbeat and, you know, make sure everything's fine. So, yeah, to me, that comes as quite a surprise that they, they didn't sort of automatically say, oh, well, just come in just for reassurance. Um, but obviously you, even though you might not have... I guess known or known that anything was wrong. Perhaps some part of you, you know, knew that it wasn't right and and that you had to go in. Well, I'm obviously really glad I did go in because the alternative might have been something like finding out on the plane or actually in Canada. Or <laughs> so. Oh, um, so this was, was this what three days before you were due to fly out? Then that's right. I actually gave birth to him the day we would have gone. So. Um, so in that respect, that's what I meant earlier when I said it was good timing in a way. Um, good timing and bad timing. <laughs> yeah, good and bad, I guess. It's never going to be good timing for something like that to happen. But um, And I remember thinking as well, one of my first thoughts actually when I was told was, how do I tell my dad? It's, it's his birthday. It's his 60th birthday today and I'm going to ruin his weekend. And it's, just, it's bizarre really because obviously it – it was a huge trauma and yet that was one of the first things is I was thinking you know this is going to inconvenience people I was expected to be in Sunderland this weekend having a good time and and going out to see a comedy show with my dad for his birthday (laughs) it was bizarre really um but you're just in shock and you don't really know what to think I remember thinking as well um and I still don't know actually whether it was in that room where I, w- where I had the ultrasound and where I was told that I could die or whether it was later on, whether it was in the delivery suite, I can't quite remember because my head's a bit like mush when it comes to thinking about the specifics. But um, I remember looking out the window and thinking, I wonder what would happen. Like, I wonder if I wonder if we're high up enough, how, how many stories up we are. And I could just end it. I could just end it now. And and that's that's a scary thought as well because it, you know I would never ever do that, um, but it was just yeah you're just in complete shock. <laughs> and I think it's just it's so incomprehensible almost. It's just too like losing your child is just it's too big a thing for your brain to process and think I can survive this. I can go on. You know, it as you say it does just change your whole world. And turns it upside down. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think certainly on that point, I mean, for me, like that phone call to our parents, I mean, that is the hardest phone call I have ever had to make. Yeah. And, you know, it is. It's it's not just the inconvenience. It's telling, you know, grandparents who were looking forward to the birth of their, you know, grandchild um, and having to break that news to them. So I guess, did you then get sent home for the hospital for a couple of days? And how did you spend that time between finding out that news and then going in to give birth to Ike? Uh, yeah, that's right. So I was sent home. I was given the, the first of two tablets to induce labour and told to go home and rest or whatever. I don't know, whatever they advise you do. But of course, you don't really do that. And I, I remember I did have a couple of leaflets. So I had a SANS leaflet. And I had a, a general one from the hospital as well, as well about what to expect. Um, but it was it was just a surreal couple of days. Um, I remember going to ASDA with Martin and standing there and I had to think about what to take to the hospital. And I think you're the same. You didn't have a hospital bag. You know, you, you're not at that point yet in your pregnancy at 26 weeks. So I, I wasn't really prepared. And I just felt like... The thought of going into hospital and giving birth to my dead baby was just surreal and traumatic and frightening. And I just, I stood in Asda and 
one of the things I was suggested, um, somebody suggested to me to buy was a nighty because obviously you're going to, you might be in there a while and you're in bed and you're giving birth and you kind of need your bottom half accessible. And I didn't have a nighty. I only have pajamas. And I stood there in Asda picking out a nighty and I just burst into tears <laughs> because I was like, I can't choose a nighty. I don't know what I want. Um, it was just so strange. Um, and then we bought like snacks and things because we thought, oh, we might be hungry in the hospital. And it's just surreal. It's just totally surreal. Um, and my dad, my dad came down actually. So I asked him to come down on this Sunday, which is when I went, I went back in on. So I found out that he died on the Friday afternoon. It's around about four o'clock, I think. And then I had to go back in on the Sunday at five o'clock. So when I was booked in to have the second tablet and be induced and, and give birth. So I went back to the hospital at five o'clock um, to have my second tablet to be induced. And I was very lucky. I now realise how lucky we were actually to have a specialist delivery suite um, just for ladies who were in my position or similar positions. Um, it's called the Rosemary Suite and it's separate from the the general delivery delivery ward um it was attached to the to the delivery ward and there was at one point uh, we've had this back to the hospital i think one of the doctors was chatting to a colleague and he was sort of leaning on the door and had the door open and we could hear babies crying um but ordinarily you can't hear other babies you can't hear like healthy babies being born so i think we're quite lucky in that respect when i've heard about other experiences up and down the country um that's not always the case so you don't always have that facility um but we had our own room it was all kitted out with ikea furnishings and um it was it was peaceful it was we had our own midwife um it was actually a lady called natalie who i don't think i'll ever forget who delivered ike and he arrived in six hours so I, I got there at five and they weren't quite ready with the paperwork so they said go and get something to eat in the canteen they gave us vouchers for for food which I didn't realize that that happened so that was nice that was a nice bonus um sent sent us away for an hour and said come back at six and then we'll we'll give you a second tablet so and actually that was the most painful part of the process I think was the the pessary so I think the the midwife who was on shift at that point, I can't remember her name, but she said, um, I'm just going to put this tablet, I think she said through your cervix or behind, behind your cervix. And I was, in my head, I was trying to picture that and think, behind? How do you go behind a cervix? Like, what does that mean? Turns out she meant pushing her fingers and the tablet through my cervix. So that was really painful. Um, but after that, he, I think I was already in labor. I, I was getting cramps every, every 10 minutes or so. And I, I think I, I know now I realize in retrospect that that's, that was probably me in labor before the tablet was even given. So, um, so it all happened fairly quickly. And again, I'm, I think I'm quite lucky in that respect, but it was, I guess it was a, a natural, a, a normal, <laughs> in some respects, a natural, natural birth and, um, you know, it wasn't easy, but having Martin there and having my own midwife um, made it all the more e easier. And I think I just went into, went into autopilot. I sort of, the idea of it was incredibly traumatic and emotionally the biggest challenge of my life. But when I was actually in the process, it, it just became a physical act. And I sort of almost forgot that he died. And I just thought, this is something I have to do. I have to do it for him. Um, cause when I was first told he died, I remember thinking, okay, what happens now? Like, how do we get him out? And just, I just didn't think for one minute that I'd have to actually give birth to him, you know, like out of my body, um, in the way that a lot of women do. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, so that's what I did. And, and I have to say, Martin is just, I mean, he's got a reputation anyway in our family for being just really cool and really laid back and nothing flusters him. Um, but I remember we laughed about it afterwards. We looked at his watch. He's got a sports watch and it produces a graph of his heart rate. And we looked at it after I'd given birth to Ike and it was just, it was below 60 the entire time. It was so <laughs> cool. Keeping me calm, rubbing my back, you know, catching my sick and various other bodily fluids. I was sick a lot, by the way. Mm. You Did you have gas and air? I didn't have gas and air, actually. I had... Um, had a bit of codeine after a couple of hours and then I had um 
a morphine injection in my butt. And I remember the midwife saying, you can either have the full whack, but you probably won't remember, you'll be too out of it. You won't even remember giving birth. Or I can give you like half a dose and see how that goes. And I thought, well, I've never given birth before and I don't know where, like how far do you go from here? So if I go for the full whack, I've got nowhere to go from then on. And if, if I'm in loads of pain, what do I do? So I said, well, just give me half for now. And that sedated me enough to, I actually fell asleep for a little while through my contractions. <laughs> and then I was rudely awoken by my waters breaking. And that's where Martin Sport, Sports Watch, the graph had a little blip in his heart just rate. Just a little one. Just a he, tiny little blip yeah, in his pulse. Just a little blip. It went like above 60 for like half a second, which is when my waters broke. And I sort of went oh, like this, like sort of panicked. Um because I didn't really didn't really know that was what happened as well. Like I, I just didn't really have time to think about it. So um, yes, yeah, so my waters broke, and then Ike arrived half an hour, I think, less than half an hour after my waters broke. Um, and yeah, when he was actually when I was actually pushing him out, just tell me if I'm if this is TMI by That's the way. Okay. <laughs> um, but I remember it being really just. A lot of other lost mums I've heard talking about this as well, just really silent. You know, normally in a birthing suite, it's it's frantic and it's, well, I don't know, I imagine it to be like quite noisy and, you know, bleeps on monitors and midwives saying push and the lady screaming and, and then the baby comes out and it's crying and there was none of that. I was so calm, but in, it, almost in a nice way because it was peaceful and, um, and he came out breach. And I remember I delivered sort of most of him and then his head was yet to come out. And the midwife said, okay, we've just got the head to come out, just a few more pushes. And I was just like, oh God, but what if I decapitate him? Like, I didn't say that, but I was thinking that. And I was just like, what if, you know, what if I don't, I don't know how to push and what if I do it wrong? And I was just so worried about getting it wrong, but obviously he came out fine. And um, and then she took him away for a bit, which is what I asked because I said, you know, maybe maybe just take them away and just like sort of clean them up a little bit and then bring them back in. And that was only like five minutes, I think, that she took them away. And had they spoken to you, I guess, before you went into that kind of more active stage of labour about what you wanted to do when he was born? Yeah, they did, I think. Yeah, they must have done. This um, second midwife, Natalie, she she was awesome. She, she sat me down and almost like a counsellor would or like a therapist. And we had a good chat before. So it was after I had the second tablet, but I wasn't, I was having contractions, but they weren't kind of too intense by that point. She just sat down on, in this chair next to my bed in the, in the suite. And she just, you know, asked me things like, so how are you feeling? And um, you know, like the emotional well-being side, and and that was really good. And I guess you must have asked me at that point, um, have you thought about what you might do um, after he's born? Like, do you want to see him? Do you want to hold him? So she was really gentle with all that, and like I say, just incredibly professional. I mean, even even the domestic staff, you know, cleaning staff that we came across while we were there, um, all the way up through the ranks to consultant, everyone was just amazing. Um, so yeah, they, they did ask me that. I'm sure they must've done. And did you spend some time with Ike then in the hospital, in the bereavement suite before you left? Yeah, we did. We stayed there. So I had him early hours of Monday morning and then, uh, we, st- we left on the Tuesday evening. So it was kind of two full days. Um, and they, they, the staff there said we could stay as long as we wanted, really. But I think we knew when it was time. Um, and you always look back and you think, oh, I wish I'd spent longer. I wish I'd had one one more cuddle. But really, I'd, I also had this side of me that was thinking, I really, really wanted answers. I mean, one thing I missed out of the story of finding out that he died was I practically screamed, actually, at the consultant. I just screamed, why? And I, I wanted to know why he died and obviously they couldn't tell me in that moment and we spent a couple of days there but I remember the whole time every time we got him out of his cot and every time we cuddled him or a family member met him it obviously meant taking him out of that cold area and I didn't want to compromise his post-mortem because I so badly wanted answers and I knew that that would compromise you know every time he gets a bit warm um, it's going to compromise any results that we might have uh, from the autopsy so I think we we felt we felt ready as well though I think by the end I mean it was the hardest still to this day the hardest thing I've ever had to do 
Yeah. And did you did you find out why he had died and what had happened at all from the postmortem or other results? Uh, no, <laughs> in a word, no. Um, we got the results of the postmortem. I think it was about sixteen weeks later, and. Um, I mentioned before how impatient I am. So this was, this was after several weeks of me kind of ringing the bereavement midwife and saying, hey, what's going on here? And a um, bit of pestering. I'm, I can be quite pushy when I want to be. Um, so 16 weeks and then we got our results in the antenatal clinic, <laughs> which I think definitely needs to change. I mean, why why drag a, a woman who's just 16 weeks earlier giving birth to her, her dead baby and then take her into a place where there's lots of babies and pregnant women um anyway um and they they say i mean the, the summary basically says his cord was hypercoiled which is when it's got like a few too many curls in it um but that's not necessarily a basis for a cause of death being established um it could be it, it it mentions um so the the full uh, version of the report says that his body was macerated so severely macerated which i looked up and it basically means he was he was dead for quite a while um which is something i i think that i really struggled with that so we now know that he died he was about the size of a 19 or 20 week gestation baby so he'd actually died probably shortly after my 20 week scan that scan where I started to relax and think that everything was fine and that's the irony really um so his body was basically decomposing inside of me for for like six weeks so the results were kind of very much inconclusive the hypercoiling of his cord they say that can happen you know after the baby's died basically it's a natural response I think if the cord is to to coil up a bit so we do, we have no idea really all of the tests they ran on my blood and on the placenta and all of that stuff came back negative and um, there was a slight a weekly positive result for something called CANCA which is normally linked to rheumatoid conditions in pregnancy but because I didn't have any other symptoms they said that wasn't really anything to re-examine it wasn't really pointing to anything so it's really difficult isn't it <laughs> yeah because ours was quite similar and actually you know, I mean, the, the the clinical language of a postmortem report is also quite difficult to read, isn't it? And, yeah, it's really hard. <laughs> and I think, so Sky also had similar comments about the, you know, her body being macerated, et cetera, et cetera. But I had had a 25-week midwife appointment. So I had heard, we had both heard a heartbeat then. And I think that if it hadn't been for that, they would have said she died a lot earlier but because we'd heard that heartbeat, it was like, well, you know, it was unequivocal. <laughs> you know, she yeah. not died at that point. That's really interesting because I did have a 25-week midwife appointment and they didn't do the heartbeat. So, again, that's an inconsistency. You know, it must be it must yeah. vary across different hospitals and different areas. Because um, yeah. I, I, I actually never heard his heartbeat. Because even when I had his scans and, and he had his heartbeat going strong on the scan, it, there, was no, there was no audio. You didn't so, have it at a 16-week scan or anything? Oh, sorry, um, a 16-week midwife appointment. Yeah, I did, but um, I never had the, the – they never used a Doppler. It's really strange, um, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if they maybe do it – in this area, they maybe do it later on in, in your pregnancy. I, I really don't know. <laughs> yeah, um, it's, it's amazing how things – yeah, how things differ. Okay, let's let's come on to talk about grief then. And compared to a lot of people I've had on the podcast, your loss is very recent. So only in um, August last year. Could you tell us how your grief has evolved and what have been the sort of big ups and downs you've had since then? Um, it's a really interesting question. For the first few weeks, so f- sort of when when my husband was still off work and we were still in that very much shock period um I wanted to talk about I wanted to talk about it a lot but I only wanted to talk about it with close friends and close family and then as time's gone on I think when it got to November which was when his due date was so this was well 13 it was 13 weeks early so you know 13 weeks later um I got to the stage where I'd decided I wanted to do a marathon and I shared the fundraising page um, on social media on his due date because I thought it would be 
quite poignant and and symbolic to to share it on that date and then that kind of opened up the floodgates a little bit and I started to become a bit more public and I think it was also baby loss awareness week and meeting um other ladies through sands as well and creating an Instagram account as well and then finding out how important it is to start talking about your loss experience and I think yes it's only been eight months for me and I'm still like in the grand scheme of things that's still quite early to be talking about this kind of thing publicly but I feel like almost a sense of duty to get the story out there and and get people talking about it because it's only when you know the fact that you've decided to do this podcast is amazing it's it's brilliant that you you're getting these stories out there because it's only then that you start people's heads start to turn and and decision makers and people who people who control things at the top you know who make policy who decide on funding because baby loss is well maternity care and research into stillbirths and miscarriages and things like that is so so underfunded when you look at compare it to other health issues so it's kind of I guess you asked about grief I've gone off on a tangent a little bit um I guess it's part of my grief part of my dealing with it is to start to become a bit more public and I've got to be careful as well because you feel constantly this pressure of judgment I think um on social media I think you know no matter who you are but as a lost mum I don't want people thinking that I'm in any way using Ike's death as kind of I don't know, attention seeking or something, you know. Have like, you had anyone who's made you feel like that? Or is that just a sort of general thing you've picked up? No, but I overanalyze everything. I'm, that's kind of what I do. Oh, yeah, I'm with you. Um, <laughs> I'm a very, I've always been like, you know, in my career, I've always been very self-critical and self-reflective and things like that. So I guess it's just the pressure that I impose on myself, really, rather than anything anyone said, luckily. Um yeah you do feel a little bit of pressure and also I'm aware that you know I said I said to my husband just this morning I'm doing this podcast today are you, are you okay about this because I think sometimes I do forget how private he is um and Ike, Ike was his son as well and it's his story as well and of course he was he was fine about it and he's you know because he's, he's so laid back he's like yeah just say what you want it's fine um but I think if it was up to him I would be less outspoken about it maybe and like maybe would keep keep our story to ourselves a little bit more but then that's part of my processing is I am a talker I am a serious talker as you probably realize whereas um my husband is not at all I actually encouraged him to go to counseling um because I'm still actually getting counseling now from an amazing counselor at a a charity called Charlie's Angels in Leeds and she's even in the coronavirus outbreak um, she's been phoning me instead of face-to-face appointments she's amazing um and I asked my husband to go to some sessions and they sorted out a counselor for him and he got through two sessions I think and then at the end of the second session he said Oh, I've been waiting for you for ages. This is in the waiting area in the in the charity in the office, and I was like, "Oh, what? Do you, you finished early?" He was like, "Yeah, yeah, I ran out of things to say," and I was like, oh, "Okay then." And I was, I can't, I can't lie. I was a bit disappointed because I thought, you know, he doesn't always open up about his feelings. Maybe a counselor would be really good for him because he'd have that person who's like just a sounding board and someone who's neutral and not invested in it emotionally. So it'll be really good for him. But then. He just quit. He was just like, I don't need it. It's fine. I'm fine. Uh, I think people process things in different ways sometimes. Oh, definitely. Um, and also, I I do wonder perhaps sometimes that, that grief doesn't always come to the forefront, perhaps. And I think, you know, I've spoken to a couple of guys and I think, you know, they felt that, that, that perhaps there's then been a trigger later on. So perhaps a rainbow pregnancy or something else, which is then kind of had more of a, a trigger in terms of some of those those feelings but yeah it's easy to think that everyone kind of grieves the same as you or needs the same as you and actually people can be quite different absolutely um, yeah I'm very much um I like to be proactive as well I like to feel like I'm doing things actively to help myself so within a few weeks of, of having Ike I was researching classes that I could go to because I was on maternity leave and I wanted a structure to my week so I was looking up sort of yoga classes and different things I could get involved in we joined a running club um I, I've started meditating 
and you know I, I very much wanted to I bought I bought a ton of books <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it's what I do I read I read book after book after book about loss and about grief um whereas my husband just he hasn't done any of that so it, yeah absolutely people are all very unique in the way they deal with things yeah um and I think one of the things I wanted to ask you so I think when your baby isn't full term one of the first big milestones you go through is reaching their due date and that's you know a really hard thing to decide do you celebrate it do you escape from the world what do you do so what what did you guys decide to do on Ike's due date uh we escaped we did the escape from the world thing (laughs) so we booked a cottage in the Yorkshire Dales which isn't that far from my house really um but we just wanted to be somewhere where nobody knew who we were or what had happened and we spent a bit more money on a cottage that had a hot tub so we wanted somewhere like just really relaxing just a haven that we could retreat to and we stayed there for a whole week over his due date and his due date itself um I really struggled in the sort of raw period of grief with the mornings um, and I knew that the morning was going to be hard so we decided um, I was doing a lot of running we decided to do park run because it was actually a Saturday that I was um, due and we looked up the local park run which happened to be Catrick Racecourse and we went and did park run at nine o'clock just to get me out of bed to to make me get out of bed because there were some days where I just could barely lift my head off the pillow not because I was tired but just because I was so um in just in this grief bubble and didn't want to leave my bed and face the world so yeah so we did that and did park run and then we went into Richmond which was like the nearest town to where we'd booked this cottage and we had afternoon tea in this little cafe and pessimistic me I thought oh you know we're gonna go to this cafe and then someone's gonna come in with a newborn baby and sit right next to us but that didn't actually happen um and there was actually just a really pleasant older couple who sat near us and were a bit chatty and and really nice and we had afternoon tea and then we went back to the cottage and we asked all of our family because so we live in West Yorkshire and I'm from Sunderland as I mentioned earlier and Martin's from Essex so our family are at opposite ends of the country and live all over the place so we asked all of our close family to light a candle for him at 3 p.m and we did the same because we, we liked the idea. We f- we found it very comforting to think that everyone was doing it at the same time and thinking about Ike at the same time. So we lit his candle and we also spent a bit of time making a, starting to make a scrapbook. So one of my colleagues at work bought me this lovely Peter Rabbit scrapbook. So I got that out and I'd already pre-printed some pictures of, you know, scan pictures, pictures of me pregnant, like my bump, um, just anything that I, I just looked through my phone and put them all into an album called Ike. And then I just printed all of them off and we stuck them in a scrapbook and I did little annotations and as if I was speaking to Ike. And I do that a lot. I've actually got, I'm on my like sixth notepad of writing letters to him. It's one of my, one of my things that I do. One of my proactive things to process my grief is I write to him. Um, so in the scrapbook, I, I sort of address it to him. So I'll say, oh, this is a picture of me and you when we went to visit family and here's your cousin and she's eating an ice cream and she was really looking forward to meeting you. And so it was, it, that was quite nice as well to start making that scrapbook. And, uh, and then we went in the hot tub and toasted to him, opened some Prosecco and toasted to Ike. And it was really nice. It was It was hard. It was a hard day, but it was nice at the same time. It was definitely a, a significant milestone, the, the due date. And obviously we haven't had his first birthday yet, but I think we're going to do pretty much the same. We've booked a cottage in Scotland. I would hope the pandemic's settled down a bit by that point. I don't, I don't yeah. know. We'll see. Um, but hopefully it will have settled down and we can we can go to Scotland and hopefully it'll be nice weather as well. And um, yeah. yeah, Well, just to pick up on that actually and to bring us up to date as this is so beginning of April 2020 and we're currently in a, a very unique situation um, with the country being pretty much locked down, being unable to see people. Aside from your marathon, which we'll come on to talk about in a minute, do you feel like the current situation, the coronavirus has affected your grief or your experience in any way I I think the other way around I would flip it around and say actually my grief has prepared me for the coronavirus (laughs) in a way because 
I before this happened, before before we had Ike, before we found out Ike had died, before stillbirth became part of our lives, um, I was very much a control freak. I wanted to control everything. I always wanted a plan um, and to be like a few months ahead of myself. And and I think when when you found out when you find out that your baby's died, and when there's no reason for it, you almost have to let go to an extent, and you have to say, well, actually. I can't control this. I, there are some things as part of my life that I cannot possibly have control of. Um, and I guess this this virus, um, nobody invented it. Nobody, It's nobody's fault. And I guess, I'm not saying I'm completely laid back and not anxious at all. But one thing that grief has taught me is to not worry too much about things you can't control. And just to focus on the things that you can control and focus on your family and focus on who you love and all of the other stuff you can it doesn't matter it really doesn't matter mm-hmm. um so not being able to get toilet roll well big deal you know we'll make do <laughs> we'll make do we've with got, british we've got, we've got each other um that, that's all that matters and the, the fact that i'm not at work at the minute and i was three weeks into a phase return when all this started to kick off and you know, I'll deal with it later. It's not, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's move on a bit then. So even though your loss is quite recent, you've already done quite a lot to celebrate Ike and make sure that he's not forgotten, um, your beautiful tattoo being one thing. Before we come on to talk about your run, could you tell us a bit about perhaps some of the less public things you've done to remember and celebrate Ike's life over the past eight months? I, when I was 30, I had this like early midlife crisis and decided to get a big tattoo all over my arm. And it's a Japanese tattoo, which was designed by Phil Wood, who is amazing. Um, he's based at Black Crown Photog- um, Photography, Black Crown tattoo- Tattooist in Leeds. Um, and he designed this tattoo for me. It's Japanese and he only does Japanese tattoos. And I have a very, I have a love of Japan. So we got this tattoo done for me and I had it done when I was about 30. And then but I've always felt like it was unfinished and there's a bit of a gap on my arm. So it's obviously begging to be a sleeve, right? So, and after I lost Ike, I started to follow a few people on Instagram, started to see other people having tattoos as a tribute to their baby, some of which are beautiful and quite often have the the baby's name and date of birth and that kind of thing. But for me, even though these were all really beautiful, I, I felt for some reason I didn't want his name and I didn't want, uh, well, actually, I, I learned a bit of Japanese before I we went to Japan on holiday and I knew what Ike's name would look like in Japanese if you wrote it in um, katakana, which is what the alphabet you use when you use a European word in Japanese, if that makes sense. Um, and it looks, when you write it out, Ike, it would it would actually be three syllables. It would be aiku, so aiku, Um That's kind of the Japanesey version of aik. Um, and it looks a little bit like the English word pig when you write it out. It's difficult to visualise, obviously, if you don't know, if you don't know Japanese. But I thought very early on, I was like, I'm not going to get his name in Japanese. It looks like pig. It's going to look ridiculous. Um, I don't want his date of birth. I know his date of birth. I know his name. I know his date of birth. What's the point in doing that? So I decided I wanted something more symbolic and I asked Phil for tips and um, he said, okay, I think you should go for a um, a koi carp. So I looked that up and I thought, koi carp? I'm not really sure. I'm not really into fish. That's a bit weird. <laughs> um, but obviously it's a very Japanese thing. And I, I did a bit of research and koi carp are very symbolic of a festival that they have in Japan, very traditional old-fashioned festival called Boys Day. And Boys Day is a celebration that boys, it's kind of a rite of passage when they're about six or seven. And it's a celebration of all qualities that you should ideally instill in little boys. So things like resilience, courage, um, being hardworking and, and all the rest of it. And I thought, actually, that that's quite nice. Um, the koi carp is a decoration that's used during Boys Day, particularly blue koi carp is symbolic of little boys. Um, so I thought, well, okay, that's actually quite nice. So I've now got a blue koi carp, which is my Ike tribute on my arm. And obviously most people who see this blue koi carp on my arm as part of this wider tattoo, this, well, it's basically a half sleeve now. Um, they'd probably just think, oh, well, that's nice. Um, but they don't know the meaning of it. And I quite like the idea that I'm the only one who really knows. Um, 
So that's my Ike tribute. Yeah, I love that. I love the fact that it's it kind of looks like one thing to someone else and then means something something different to you and and something a bit more private and personal, I guess, to you guys. Yeah, absolutely. Especially because Koi Carp, one of the reasons they represent resilience in little boys is because they struggle against the stream to to mate and, and stuff like that, Koi Carp. Um, and I like the idea that it's symbolic of resilience. Not my resilience, but I like to think if if Ike was here, I would I would raise him to be resilient and to be mm-hmm. courageous and you know pick himself up after a fall and and things like that. So yeah, I quite like awesome. That. So let's come on to talk about your marathon run. When did you first decide to do this, and how did you go about choosing what marathon you were going to do when you were going to do it? That kind of thing. In hospital. So before I before I even left hospital, when I went in to deliver Ike, I knew that I had to do something um, positive, and I needed something to aim for. I think as well, um, because I said as I said earlier, I like to be in control of things and I like to have a plan. So I wanted something as a milestone, as a as a deadline, if you like, in my life, something to work towards, and something that I could do, ideally with my body as well, to. Um, to kind of, I'm not explaining myself very well. Um, I wanted to, I felt like my body had let Ike down. And as much as people will say to me, it's not your fault. You looked after yourself as best you could. You're healthy. You took your vitamins. You avoided certain foods. And he, But you still died. So I just think, well, it, it is to some degree, it is my fault, you know, even though we don't know how he died. So the fact that my, I, feel, I feel like my body let him down I thought well if I do a marathon because I'd never done a marathon before I thought well that's a way that I can prove to myself and prove not to Ike because I don't believe that he's there anymore I don't believe in an afterlife but prove to to other people to myself um that my body isn't useless and my body is strong and I, I won't let my body let Ike down again so I decided a marathon would be perfect. Um, I picked the London Marathon initially because I thought that's roughly eight months after giving birth. That's plenty of time to do some training, get my body back into shape. And um, the idea was to get my mind and my body in a place where we could maybe then think about trying for another baby. Because we did have that conversation quite early on, actually. Me, me and Martin were both on the same page there. Um, I felt a strong hormonal attachment to Ike and I felt like um, even though I had the tablet to suppress your milk I still had my milk come in and I had all of these hormones rushing around my body and I just felt like I had this really unfulfilled need to be a mother and but I didn't want to go into it too quickly because I didn't want to I didn't want to replace Ike and I didn't want anyone thinking that I was replacing Ike um, so I thought well I need to give myself this break so this eight month deadline seemed perfect and I also thought, well, we'll join a running club as well, because that, then that'll give me a bit of structure to the week and I can start getting out there and socialising and nobody in the running club will know what's happened, at least initially, and unless I decide to tell them. And it just seemed like a perfect opportunity. And I had months and months off work. And the thing always prevented me from doing a marathon previously, because I have done half marathons and I've never committed to running a full marathon because I thought I haven't got time to train you know, I work full time in a secondary school. I'm also a carer for mam. So there's no way I've got time to train for a marathon. But now it's like I had this luxury of time. And I thought running's going to be a really good way to break up my week, to give me something positive. Running makes me feel good. It's, it gets the endorphins going. So that's that's what I decided to do. And I, I thought I, I wanted to do it for Sands initially because we got a lot of support from Sands through the support groups, through the forum online and through the leaflets that we were given in the hospital. Um, but unfortunately they only had 10 places for the London Marathon and I applied um, along with 169 other applicants they had 170 applicants for these 10 places so I didn't get a place and I was really quite gutted actually at first but then I thought right no I'm gonna I'm gonna get on the phone and I'm gonna ring Tommy's um, which is the charity that I've ended up fundraising for for the marathon and they said okay I'm really sorry we haven't got any London places but we have got Manchester and Manchester Marathon I thought all right okay looked it up and it was actually on Ike's eight months birth well not birthday but he would have been eight months on the 5th of April so I thought okay that that's quite good that's quite nice that it would be 
on a milestone, like an eight month milestone. So that's, that's basically what I decided to do. Um, did seven months of training. I did my first training run three weeks after I gave birth. Wow. (laughs) That's impressive. I just had to get myself out there, I think. Um, and did all this training and of course, all the news started. Coronavirus, <laughs> Coronavirus came along. Oh dear, and it's messing up everybody's plan. So my perfect plan of um, giving myself eight months to grieve, to get my body in shape, to get myself ready mentally, to run the marathon as a tribute to Ike and then move on and start making another baby. I mean, all of that has just completely gone out the window. So my race was postponed to October. I decided quite early on, like, sod this I'm not going to do another six months of training this is ridiculous and I'm not putting my my life on hold I'm not doing it in October so my husband Martin has decided he's decided to take my place in the official marathon which will be on the 11th of October all being well but I I couldn't let go of I thought I've done too much training I've raised too much money I've put my absolute heart and soul into running this marathon I've just got to do it so on the 5th of April which is so today's Tuesday, the 7th of April. So it's two days ago. I'm still quite sore. <laughs> two, two days ago, I set my alarm for 5am and I decided to leave before the sun came up just to respect social distancing rules because, you know, it's quite controversial that I would even still do it in these circumstances. But I thought, no, I'm, I, I just have to do it. My mental health's going to suffer more if I don't do it. So I got up and and I did it. I did a marathon on my own. <laughs> On the on the deserted streets of Pudsey, <laughs> and I feel that is that is so amazing. I mean, I have I don't know. I've kind of done an ultra with friends and with people, like, but just to, it's just a whole different experience from you know having that crowd cheering you on, having people there to to as you say, going out at the crack of dawn when no one else is around to do that. What was going through your head as you were running, and how did it feel to complete it? <laughs> what was going through my head various things apart from pain <laughs> hey, do you know what I did a 20 mile training run as part of my training with with not not really much pain not not many problems really and then when I actually did the marathon it wasn't even mile 10 and I was, I was in serious agony so I, I don't know what happened there because I, I did loads of training um yeah, so pain was was the majority, I would say, of the marathon. But um, what was going through my head? So I spent the first couple of hours actually listening to podcasts, including yours. So I listened to the one, um, who's the lady, the um, Bee's mum, who did Beyond... Yeah, Steph. Who, yeah, Beyond mm-hmm. Bee, that's it, Steph. So I listened to her, her episode of Footprints on Our Hearts. I listened to, I'm listening to another podcast called Serial. Podcasts has honestly got me through a lot of training runs. Um and then it got to the point where I think I was in so much pain that I couldn't intellectually engage in something like a podcast. So I switched to drum and bass. And that is, that's been my savior as well in a lot of training runs when it starts getting hard. And you know what? I always picture, um, I picture Ike and his little hands and his little feet pushing me. Like, it's particularly hills. There's a lot of big, big hills around here. I mean, Manchester Marathon would have been a lovely flat course. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. So doing it around here, some big big hills and I just kind of imagined Ike pushing me like come on mummy you can do it and that that got me through and I I also I've got these little stones um so my sister-in-law and her family have just been amazing throughout all of this and they sent me in the post these stones that they'd found in the park my niece and nephew had found them or something and they washed them and cleaned them and then painted little designs on them and each one's got Ike's name and a little ladybird or a, a flower or something they painted these designs on them and then put nail varnish or something over the top to seal them and then put them in the post and they're these gorgeous little pebbles um and the idea was you can have these take them out on walks and leave them in places where you might have taken ike or you know just kind of you could just have them as a decorative item in the home whatever you want to do with them and i had this idea quite early on in my, my marathon training to take one of these little stones out on a big i, I did one big training run every week so I would take a, a pebble, an Ike pebble on a train on the long training run and leave it like maybe on a park swing or um, oh, I can't remember all the places I left them, but I would take almost like I was taking them with me, you know, s- symbolically. Um, so I took I took one of those with me and I decided I was going to take it with me in my pocket on the marathon 
Um, and I wanted him every step of the way. So I actually didn't leave it anywhere this time. I just took it the whole way around the course. Uh, so I still have it. And that's my kind of marathon stone now. Ike's marathon stone. That's brilliant. I love the thought of him pushing you up those hills. <laughs> and yeah, your shit is pretty early. It is. Oh, thank you so much, Hayley. We are about out of time, but thank you for sharing out story and talking with me today. Would you like to tell people where they can connect with you online? Uh, yeah, so I've got an Instagram account. It's Ike's underscore mummy. So I-K-E-S underscore mummy um, on Instagram. That's my preferred social media at the moment, particularly with the Lost community. It's been amazing. Fantastic. I will put a link to that in show notes. Thanks so much again. It's been wonderful chatting with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Footprints on Our Hearts. Please help me break the silence around baby loss by sharing the podcast with your friends and leaving a review on iTunes. You can follow me on Instagram at Footprints on Our Hearts and Twitter at Sky's Footprints. For detailed show notes and to support the podcast and help me raise money for Tommies, please visit our website, footprintsonourhearts.com. <laughs>